We're going to go ahead and get started. This clock is a few minutes fast if anybody's actually paying attention to the time. Um, so we're getting started right at 8.02. Um, it is my honor today to introduce Dr. Frank Penna, who is, go is one of our new urologists here. He joined us here in August of 2016. Um, and what I really appreciate is Dr. Penna came up to me within a few months of working here and said, Kathy, you do grand rounds, right? I'd love to come talk to your group. So I really appreciate his enthusiasm for doing it. It's taken us a year to get him on the schedule, but he is here now. He comes to us uh, having done an undergraduate at... Uh, at Boston College with a Bachelor of Science in both Biochemistry and Philosophy, followed up by Rutgers, um, where he graduated from medical school. He then went on to do a research fellowship at Children's Hospital in Boston in the Department of Urology, followed by his surgical internship and residency in urology at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. Um, he did his fellowship training in Toronto at Sick. Uh, at uh, University of Toronto as a clinical fellow in pediatric urology. And although he finished his fellowship in June of 2016, he's already very well accomplished in the academic world with seven book chapters to his name and 35 manuscripts. So I think that's an impressive start to a promising academic career. And we welcome Dr. Penna to talk to us a little bit about pediatric urology. So thank you. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you again for the opportunity to, uh, to be here um, and present a little bit about uh, what I do um, on a daily basis here. Um, with um, the goal in mind of uh, making this applicable to, uh, to your practices as well. So just a disclaimer before I begin. Uh, the talk does include uh, some graphic and sensitive material presented for educational purposes. Um, uh, this includes images of, um, of children's genitalia, et cetera. So I'm sure you probably anticipated this, given that this is a urology talk, but I just wanted to give you this disclaimer. Um, so uh, as uh, Kathy mentioned, um, I've had the privilege of, of, of training and spending um, an extended period of time at um, some uh, very renowned institutions. Um, and I, I was... Um, I had the opportunity to do a research fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital focusing on um, novel surgical techniques and innovative devices, um, and then moved on to uh, the Hospital for Sick Children and the University of Toronto, where my uh, clinical fellowship um, was. And um, I'm hoping, really, the goal is to bring all of this experience and training uh, to, to, here, to Chad and to, to Dartmouth. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Toronto is the, the fourth largest city in North America, and uh, Sick Kids uh, takes up a whole city block, uh, as you can see there from the aerial view. I spent uh, the, the, second the second year of my clinical fellowship uh, doing basic science research in that uh, tall building, which happens to be uh, all basic science laboratories, um, and it is the uh, largest or second largest uh, pediatric institution in the world. Um, I also spent some time in Detroit uh, at Henry Ford Hospital, which is sort of um, the birth center for robotic surgery um, and the robotic prostatectomy. This is our robotic room uh, designed by our, our chairman at the time, and you can see um, the large 150-inch uh, uh, screens uh, projecting the operation. The two consoles, uh, I'm sitting at one and my attending at the other. And then the bedside assistant and the patient is actually contained deep within the sort of robotic um, device there in this, in this off to the right of the picture. Um, the reason why I show this to you is I also, this is one area of, of clinical interest that I have. And I, I hope to build up the uh, robotic program um, uh, here at CHAD and offer minimally invasive surgery uh, to children because I think it has very clear benefits uh, with regards to postoperative pain and, and recovery. So just to talk a little bit about my research interest, uh, I, I have a distinct interest in uh, surgical device development. Um, and just to show you kind of a little background on what that means, um, we published a paper looking at 
repurposing a double J ureteral stent um, for the lower urinary tract. So a double J stent typically goes from the kidney down to the bladder and functions like a temporary drainage tube um, um, after surgery, after stone surgery, etc. cetera. Um, but we repurposed this for um, using it in neonates, particularly valve babies, uh, from the bladder to the outside world. And I'll show you some images. So this just demonstrates some of the limitations with the current catheters that we have, the balloon catheter, a Foley catheter, obviously um, the trauma that associated with a Foley catheter could be upon insertion uh, or dislodgement uh, due to the balloon. It can cause uh, urinary tract trauma. And the urology residents here are intimately familiar with this, um, given the, uh, the calls they get about uh, this being sort of a, a, chronic, a chronic issue in the hospital. The feeding tube, which really was never designed for the urinary tract, is another uh, drain that we use. Um, however, it is also um, associated with uh, trauma and, uh, and um, much easier to dislodge than, than a Foley catheter because there's no really way of uh, properly securing it within the bladder. So uh, this is just an example from my fellowship of um, a feeding tube that actually knotted in the bladder during a routine uh, Cat, obtaining a, a routine cat specimen, and uh, we were able to get it out, um, but just showing you that these sorts of things can happen and um, make, them, make these particular tubes much more morbid. This is just showing you a VCOG image um, uh, with the Foley catheter balloon here um, actually dislodged into the posterior urethra, uh, just showing that the balloon can also cause trauma that way. Also, an image on the right shows... Um, a false passage creation from a feeding tube uh, during the imaging study. Oh, thanks. Yeah, this was probably good. Okay. Um, and this is an endoscopic view of a false passage. Uh, as you can see here, this is the true lumen there, and you can see this is sort of a, a false passage from one of the catheters. Um, so we, what we ended up uh, designing was uh, this method of, of lower urinary tract drainage where you can actually use a guide wire and insert the, the stent into the, into the bladder, um, which allows it to avoid the posterior urethral valve, for example, or other uh, ur lower urinary tract obstruction sources. And it stays in the bladder here, as you can see, by the curl on the flat abdominal x-ray. But it also could be confirmed, its position could be confirmed by, by ultrasound. Um, we also measured flow through the catheters through a double J stent, which is what I just showed you a feeding tube and a Foley catheter, it was found that the double J stent actually drains um, 18 times faster than a Foley catheter and six times faster than a feeding tube. So it's actually functioning like a better drain as well. Um, it can also be used as a temporary um, device for um, diversion here for the stenotic um, stoma until, until revision, until operative revision. Um, so we're working on designing a... Um, a stent that has the, has the curl that maintains it in the bladder without a balloon. Uh, so it would, if it were to get dislodged, it wouldn't traumatize the urinary tract. It would just come out. But, but it's stiff enough to keep it in the bladder without becoming dislodged. So you don't need to secure it any way besides just the way it's shown here. Like it doesn't need to be taped onto the child's uh, leg as a, or um, onto the penis, for example, as the feeding tube would be. And then we're designing sort of a, uh, the distal part, um, sort of a trumpeted end that can be hooked up to other uh, like a bag, for example, or um, or a syringe for retrograde installation of contrast. Uh, some of the uh, the other projects I'm working on here uh, is development of a biodegradable ureteral stent, uh, and this is in combination with um, an associate professor at the engineering school at Bayer over in Hanover, and we're basically taking the design, um, which is the double J, and coming up with some differing designs that may minimize some irritation from the stent. Um, for, any of you, for any of you who have taken care of patients who have had stents before, particularly older children, adolescents, and adults, they, it can be quite um, annoying to have it in for even the immediate post-operative period. Um, and the, the main goal is that these stents are biodegradable, so that just like suture would, would degrade or dissolve, uh, where the goal is to, to test these in, in the swine model and see if they can dissolve. This would save a child, for example, another trip to the operating room, another anesthetic for, for removal. So that's, that's the goal, to kind of minimize the morbidity of what we do. 
So uh, I just wanted to show you that just to kind of give you some background on, on some, of my, some of my clinical and research interests. But today's talk is going to be uh, basically covering this material. So first I want to start off by going through uh, a number of high-definition photographs of common physical exam findings that you may see in, in, in the patients. Um, and uh, please feel free to interrupt me during that if you have any questions about what you're seeing or how, I, how we manage these, these sorts of patients. Um, it's going to be followed by touching upon adolescent varicocele. This was uh, asked of me by uh, Keith Loud because of this is something that you, you guys need to kind of uh, be aware of, and obviously it's a common referring diagnosis. Um, I'm going to go into guidelines for the workup of, of febrile urinary tract infection in children and also uh, lead into a discussion on vesicoureteral reflux. So this is congenital megaprepuce or, uh, or congenital buried penis. This differs from... Um, uh, normal foreskin basically because there's very little ventral skin, as you can see. I don't know if my pointer's working. Here it is, yeah. You could, there's very little ventral skin here. Uh, so this is, a, this is a patient that you would not want to have um, a neonatal circumcision performed on, and mainly because in that instance, you'd be removing way too much skin and leaving really no penile skin for, for coverage. Um, so this child is best repaired in the operating room after six months of age. Um, it's more of a phalloplasty, uh, sort of, a, sort of a, a reconfiguration of, of some of the dorsal skin ventrally by wrapping it around. But the whole shaft of the penis is actually buried within some of the uh, suprapubic fat. Um, and this, this is typically phimotic at times, where you, you actually you can't deliver the penis by pushing on it. Sometimes the kids also, when they urinate, uh, they get pooling of urine within, within the foreskin, trapped sort of ballooning of the foreskin that way. So... Um, this is something that you may encounter, and it just involves a little bit more, um, more work later on in the operating room. This is medial stenosis, um, a very common complication after circumcision, classically defined as an upward deviating stream. These kids are not typically um, in pain or discomfort from, from during urination. This is just classically in um, a toilet-trained child. Um, usually it's picked up at that point because the parents are finally able to see the, the child urinate regularly. And uh, we, we, I usually repair these in the operating room, um, mainly because I, um, I put a few stitches in them to kind of sew it, sew it open. So I, I basically cut and then sew it open. That way it minimizes the chance for recurrence. Um, some people do a meatotomy at, at sort of the bedside in the clinic. That's another option uh, if the child's old enough and cooperative uh, to do it there. Uh, this is uh, penile skin bridges. This is a form of a penile adhesion. Uh, the problem with these is they don't typically respond to steroid cream. So we usually use a topical steroid cream for, you know, a, a short period of time, four to six weeks, um, betamethasone or clobetazole, um, and that helps to dissolve, you know, post-circumcision penile adhesions. Um, however, with this particular situation, these are more formal skin bridges, and they require uh, surgical intervention, so they require it to be cut. This is more extensive. I would do this case in the operating room um, just because... Um, uh, it's better off if the child is asleep for, for this because it looks like it's quite it's all circumferential around the dorsal aspect of the penis. But um, for you know mild ones where it's just one or two, uh, and the child is cooperative, I can do it in the clinic actually. This is phimosis. This is common. Again, I mentioned uh, topical steroid cream. We we usually recommend um, we use clobetazole. We use it once a day for about six weeks, um, and have the parents uh, help the child apply it to the area, um, and. Um, it, for mild to moderate uh, phimosis, it actually has very good success in um, helping uh, to deliver the glands or the head of the penis through the through the you know the, the tight sort of stenotic uh, foreskin. Obviously, for very severe phimosis, um, we would opt to do uh, circumcision. For severe phimosis, that would include obviously ones that don't respond to the steroid cream, but also um, if the child has ballooning of the foreskin, it typically it's so tight that um, urine is getting trapped under under the foreskin that way. Uh, this is labial adhesions in a, in a little girl. Um, so we, we, we usually use uh, topical estrogen cream for this, sort of as the initial medical management of it. Um, or you can also use topical steroid cream for this as well and treat it just like you would a penile adhesion. Obviously, for uh, cases where the, the patient doesn't respond to the, to the medical management, we surgically just open it up. It's a pretty straightforward little procedure. Um, I do them routinely in Chad pain-free, um, so they don't need to really go to the operating room. 
um, but it's enough to keep the child sedated and um, not feeling feeling anything during it. Um, and obviously, there's still a risk for recurrence. Um, we usually have them apply um, either some of the steroid cream or uh, Vaseline to the area uh, postoperatively. Uh, for those of you who've never seen this, it's a bladder extrophy. Um, since I've been here 14 months or 15 months, we haven't seen one here. Uh, I think the prevalence in general is going down. Um, mainly, uh, it could be related to um, early termination on the part of the parents. Uh, as you can see, the it's important, if you ever do see one, it's important, the umbilical stalk, it's important to put a stitch in it and sew it out of the way so it's not flopping onto the to the bladder. Uh, the bladder, obviously, is right here, and it's uh, it's sort of raw and uh, could be insulted by environmental stimuli, so we usually um, uh, have saran wrap over it, and that uh, basically protects it until surgical intervention is performed. Um, these children are typically otherwise healthy. They have typically no other urologic manifestations besides this. You know, they have normal kidneys typically, uh, et cetera. So, um, but just to show you kind of an image of bladder atrophy. Uh, this is uh, isolated epispadias. This is associated with atrophy. Typically, boys with atrophy will have epispadias where the opening of the urethra um, or the meatus comes out uh, dorsally instead of ventrally as, as it would in, um, in hypospadias. Um, this is more rare than than bladder atrophy, so isolated epispadias being a milder manifestation of the, of the spectrum of the condition is actually more rare than, than, than the whole thing. Uh, it's one of the fewer conditions in medicine where that's the case. Uh, this is hypospadias. This is a proximal hypospadias, or more severe form, where you can see the meatus down at, sort of at the penis corneal junction there. Um, Typically for distal hypospadias, I do them in one stage. I can do that. It's outpatient surgery. It takes me about two and a half to three hours to do them um, with very good outcomes um, and very low complication rate. Proximal hypospadias is a different beast. Uh, it usually uh, is a two to multi-stage repair. Um, it depends on the quality of the urethral plate, um, how well this can be reconstructed. Um, at times, we do use um, a bit of the foreskin and bring it around and replace the, the, the urethral plate that the child's born with, with with foreskin coverage, and then we end up tubularizing that, that foreskin, you know, a few months later as sort of a second-stage operation. Um, so that's proximal hypospadias. Uh, for the distals, functionally, the kids do quite well um, and, have, like I mentioned, very good outcomes. Um, it's controversial whether or not we should be repairing as many distal or mild hypospadias as, as we do, mainly because if we don't do anything, the child still is able to urinate, usually standing up, um, and otherwise um, uh, has normal functions of, of the penis. It's more or less just a cosmetic um, issue, um, just making the penis look like a normal circumcised penis with an orthotopic meatus. For proximal, like I said, it's a different beast. Obviously, these children, um, re uh, surgery is, is recommended um, mainly to allow the child to stand up and have normal function of the penis. This is female epispadias, even more rare, just to kind of show you an image. Um, also, the treatment is surgical for this. Testicular torsion, um, this is a common, uh, it's common to, for, for ER presentation with uh, scrotal or testicular pain. This child actually was torsed. As you can see here, the, the testicle is ischemic. Uh, it looks blackish, purplish, and you can see actually there is a twist there. This one was about, I think, 720 initially. Uh, when then we untwist it in the operating room, we go through a scrotal approach. Th again, this is one of the few urologic emergencies uh, that we see, and typically we try to get the, the kids to the operating room within six hours of presentation or the onset of symptoms uh, to help um, salvage the testicle. And so when you untwist it, uh, if it's usually within that six-hour window, you can see it pink back up right interoperatively. And then uh, we usually also pexy, which means put a stitch in and secure the other side as well through the scrotum, um, and then close the scrotum. Uh, so it's always it's always good when we save the testicle. This is uh, one of my mentors in Toronto, one of the residents in Toronto, and uh, that patient was was from Dormac Fellowship. Um, I don't mind going in the middle of the night if I if I if I can save the testicle. It's it's always a Sort of heroic effort. Um, this is a slightly different condition. This is neonatal torsion. Um, so this is uh, something you probably see in, in very little little babies. Um, it's sort of an unfortunate thing because usually by the time it's 
actually virtually all the, all the time by the time it's detected, its testicles are already, already dead. Um, so usually uh, I, this is not an emergency. I wouldn't rush the kid to the operating room for that reason. Uh, I would do it on an elective basis, usually, usually within two, two weeks or you know, a couple of weeks of, of presentation. Uh, the main goal is to pexy the contralateral side so that the same thing doesn't happen to that. It's usually a bilateral process. Um, as you can see here, this is the dead testicle here. No, no, worth, no use in salvaging it. It's, it's long gone. Usually by the time there's scrotal swelling and symptoms, that's usually a, a sign the testicle's already dead. Um, and the healthy contralateral testicle uh, there. Uh, this is an interesting case. I, uh, we can go through this quickly. It's just... Um, as you can see here, this is a protuberant abdomen in a child. Uh, it's, a, it's a preemie uh, who um, was uh, seen and evaluated in the neonatal intensive care unit uh, in Toronto, and he was excuse me, antenatally known to have a renal mass, as you can see here on the ultrasound. This is, um, this is the extent of the mass, and as you can see on the, the gross examination, it's quite large uh, and protuberant. The black here is his bladder. Um, and this is, again, the mass uh, here, cross-sectional image of the, of the mass occupying the majority of the abdomen, uh, a flat plate x-ray showing a mass effect of it um, with the bowels sort of being compressed off to one side. We ended up surgically treating this child. Uh, we, we didn't rush him to the operating room. He was in, in the NICU for, for a little bit, and he was having some issues with um, sort of a respiratory compromise, uh, and the thought was it was due to the mass, so we decided to take him um, to the operating room. The goal initially was to delay surgery until he got a little bit bigger because he was quite small. Um, anyway, we ended up removing this uh, surgically through, a, through a, uh, a flank incision, and you can see the bowel here. These shell out pretty easily, and the bowel, um, you know, you can usually dissect it fairly well off the mass. And then that's the gross specimen here. You can see this is all of the mass, and this is what's left of sort of his kidney there um, below. Uh, sort of the cross-sectional um, path specimen there of that. So this was a congenital mesoplastic nephroma, um, typically the most common tumor in that age group uh, of the kidney. Uh, so I'm going to proceed into the, the next part of the talk here. Um, so we're going to move on to adolescent varicocele. Um, and uh, just to kind of show you an image, um, Um, varicocele is something that you'll, you'll, you'll definitely encounter, um, and it uh, basically uh, there's a series of veins that are within the scrotum that all converge into the um, testicular vein, and then drain back up through the abdomen. Um, and it depends on. I'll show you the next image. It depends on which side you're talking about um, as to where that that vein uh, actually drains into. Um, the left side, in particular, drains into the left renal vein. Um, the right testis, through, via its testicular vein, goes to the inferior vena cava. And why is this important? Um, essentially, varicocele is like varicose veins within the scrotum. Um, and the sort of pathophysiology, the reason why it happens is uh, there is some, there is, it's thought to be that there is more hydrostatic pressure in this portion of the venous system because it... Uh, empties into a smaller vein, and then the left renal vein goes into the inferior vena cava after that. Um, but the thought is, because of um, sort of the hydrostatic pressure, it challenges the valve system within the vein there, and it's such a long vein. Uh, and then what happens is there's some back pressure and increased amounts of blood within uh, the scrotal vein network um, on the left side. Uh, these are virtually all left-sided. Um, uh, I would say that 95% of them are. Um, it happens typically in adolescent boys, and the thought behind that is uh, they typically get a growth spurt, uh, which makes the length of the, length of the vein longer, um, so challenges more, it's more of a, of a uh, distance for that blood to have to travel back to the heart. Uh, also, uh, during puberty, so in adolescents, post-pubertal males, um, there's an increase in the volume and size of the testicle, which also increases the amount of blood flow going into it and coming out of it. So... Both of those factors, I think, uh, precipitate this condition. Um, so just to show you a gross image of it, uh, like I said, virtually all of them are left-sided. You can have bilateral ones. Um, 
the concern about bilateral varicoceles, particularly if the right-sided varicocele is, is large, um, is compression of the right-sided spermatic vein or testicular vein um, by some mass effect. Um, so it's important to evaluate them if you have a concern. It's very rare, but uh, obviously if they have some kind of tumor in the abdomen, that could be precipitating a right-sided varicocele um, or bilateral varicocele. But anyway, virtually they're all left-sided. You can see the testis here, but uh, the varicocele is sort of traditionally described as a bag of worms. Uh, this is a there's a grading system which I'll, I'll get into in the subsequent slides, um, <clears throat> but uh, usually you have the child stand up. You can do it both supine and standing, and have them valsalva. And you can typically, with the valsalva maneuver, have them bear down like they're having a bowel movement. Uh, that can elicit the um, the prominence of these veins uh, by increasing the abdominal pressure. You're impairing a little bit venous return temporarily and, and precipitating this this view. Uh, Typically, as I mentioned, there, it's, a, it's a condition of, uh, that begins in adolescence, post-adolescent males. Um, and uh, so most of the kids I evaluate are in their um, early to mid-teens. Uh, um, it's graded at three way, in, th in three different grades. Uh, grade three is what you saw. It's basically, with Valsalva, you can, um, you can palpate it and you can see it through the wall of the scrotum, um, and, it's quite, and it's quite large. Uh, grade two is usually just is just palpable, not necessarily visible. Grade one is um, typically just seen on ultrasound, or um, again, there's not it's not a strict grading system. It's sort of just a, uh, a spectrum, uh, essentially. The thought behind why this is a problem, and I didn't get to this yet, is uh, because of all that extra blood in the scrotum, particularly on the left side. Uh, the thought is that it impairs testicular growth. Uh, the scrotum is approximately two degrees cooler, cooler than the core body temperature. So uh, if you have more blood in that region, the scrotum is a bit warmer, and then the testicle on that side um, in severe forms does not grow as well. And a smaller testicle, in theory, does not function as well. So fertility is really the main issue as to why we, we follow these kids and treat them surgically. Um, hypo hypotrophy, I just mentioned, that means the testicles, one testicle is smaller than the other. And it's been estimated to be uh, in grade two varicoceles in about a third of kids, and up to 81% of kids with grade three, it's been shown that that particular that left-sided testis is, is smaller. How much smaller? Um, what's concerning is greater than 20%, uh, and this is just from prior uh, research studies, um, also looking at semen analyses, et cetera. Um, there's a couple of different ways of assessing. I mean, the, the problem with this condition really is that it, it's, a, it's a game of statistics. Fertility is. Um, and so essentially by treating varicoceles, we're trying to optimize uh, fertility. Um, but uh, the, the problem is there are men with varicoceles that are still able to have children. So it's, it's hard to kind of sort out um, which men we ought to be tre treating. Do we wait till they try to have children and not be able to conceive and then get their varicocele treated? Or do we have them see the pediatric urologist and um, have them assess them in, in other ways, like with testicular volume via ultrasound or orchidometer. There's a couple of different ways of measuring testicular volume, but I typically use ultrasound. Um, uh, I don't typically do semen analysis in, in kids. Um, uh, there, have some, there are some centers doing them in, in uh, <coughs> boys in their you know, late adolescence. Um, it's sort of another way of... Um, kind of characterizing this condition and seeing if the semen analysis is abnormal. But the thought is if you can assess them via testicular volume, you can get a sense of, of, of how much this varicocele is affecting testicular growth on, on that one side. So my cutoff is typically greater than 20%, um, meaning the left testis is 20% smaller than the right testis. And obviously that's in about a third of the kids. Uh, there are other kids that I do watch or I discuss surgical intervention with um, in these groups, but it's less, less of a clear indication at that point. Um, as I mentioned, the overriding goal is preservation of fertility. Um, and this is, the, this is the problem that I, I mentioned to you. 80% of, um, of men with varicocele are fertile. They're able to have kids. Of the 20% that are infertile, surgery may benefit 50%. So really, we're helping one in 10 adolescents benefit um, from this through surgery. Um, Common indications, I mentioned size. Obviously, that's uh, the size of the varicose. If it's large, if it's having an effect of hypotrophy on the testicle, there's a disproportion. Um, discomfort and pain, this is rare. That's about 3% um, of, of, of kids complain of pain. 
Uh, sometimes it's just an annoying, it's an annoying, um, an annoyance if it's a large varicocele, uh, but it doesn't, it's not traditionally associated with pain. Um, but that's, that could be an indication for doing it if they're sort of annoyed by, by it, particularly during physical activity. Um, if it's a progressive disease process, obviously for the mild to moderate versions of these, I, I follow them with serial ultrasounds six months to a year and see kind of if, if that left testicle is being affected over time with the, the notion that we would go in surgically to repair it um, if it was worsening. We repair them a couple of different ways. Uh, there's the laparoscopic approach. That's the one I typically use. Uh, it takes me about 40 minutes to do it. Um, I use uh, three ports, three little incisions. Uh, it's outpatient, as I mentioned. Um, I basically go in laparoscopically and use a cautery tool and ligate the spermatic vein as it's coursing into the abdomen. So it's, 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 a, it's a web of veins here, and then they all converge into the, a solitary spermatic vein going up, and I typically get it up here. Uh, so it's like a higher ligation. There's a couple of different ways. There's uh, a low subing, there's an inguinal or a subinguinal, um, uh, a, a higher, a higher, there's a couple of different ways to do it depending on where you want to try to approach the vein. Um, these are open incisions, but they're also outpatient surgery. And, and uh, essentially, all of the um, approaches have very good success rates. Uh, in, this is a little bit lower, but I, I think that typically in the literature, they're all above 90%, and that means um, significant decrease in the size of the varicocele postoperatively, as well as um, catch-up growth, catch growth of that left testis, which is the goal. Um, Hydrocele is, is something that happens uh, in the laparoscopic approach. I, I, this is um, basically fluid around the testicle um, after the surgery. Uh, it's also a spectrum. It's thought to be related to um, impairing lymphatic drainage um, from clipping the vessel, uh, essentially. And it's, it's a bit higher in the laparoscopic approach because you are clipping the vein the artery as well as as well as potentially some lymphatics, and that's why it's thought that this is less selective, um, selecting out the lymphatics, and that's why it has a higher hydrocele rate. But um, but anyways, it's uh, it's they're all very good approaches. So just heading into uh, pediatric UTI, which is uh, incredibly common uh, in your practice, I'm sure. It's the most common serious infection of childhood. Uh, fortunately, it's no longer the fetal illness it once was. Um, However, it is woefully um, over, uh, overly misdiagnosed, but also sadly underdiagnosed at the same time. Um, one in five uh, pediatric office visits have been estimated to be uh, uh, for the workup of fever. Uh, and then UTI is thought to cause about 7% of these febrile uh, episodes. It has an important age and gender effect, as you can see in this table here. In, in young children and babies, uh, it's much higher in the male uh, population, 2.7% versus 0.7%. As the child gets older, that uh, relationship uh, reverses, and it's more common in females, 18 to 24, at 10.8% versus it drops off quite considerably for males after the first year of life. This is just a visual representation of that. As you can see, um, male is much higher than the triangle, and then it drops off, and, um, and female in the, in the square there also drops off um, but not quite as low as, as the male uh, incidence. So why do we care about, about febrile urinary tract infections? Well, they're morbid. Um, for very young babies, they, uh, there's a tendency to admit them to the hospital for intravenous antibiotics, uh, spinal taps, et cetera, for workup of, of fever. We worry about renal scarring from the, from the infections. And then potentially for recurrent infections, although it's quite rare, renal insufficiency from, from these. Um, uh, roughly 20 to 30% uh, of children studied after the first febrile urinary tract infections will have a condition called vesicoureteral reflux, which is really a, a significant risk factor for the development of these infections. Um, and it's been estimated that 10 to 20% of these will have scarring at presentation. Um, just showing you uh, a visual representation of the number of urinary tract infections and the increased risk of renal scarring with the subsequent infections. They present differently, as you know. Uh, neonates can present with sepsis. Um, infants, fever, failure to thrive, GI symptoms. And school-age children and adolescents, sometimes irritate avoiding symptoms. It's a, a bit sometimes more elusive um, to really uh, hang your head on, on a urinary tract infection in these kids. Um, obviously, you know the couple of different uh, ways of collecting the urine. Superpubic aspiration is the best, but it's a little bit more 
Um, it could be a little bit more morbid. A CAT specimen versus a midstream voided specimen in older patients, it's important to retract the, the, the foreskin in uncircumcised boys. Obviously, this is a source of contamination, as well as the labia in girls. Uh, this is incredibly important um, in getting a really good specimen. The bag specimen is the least reliable, as you probably anticipated, but if there's no growth in it, that's quite useful um, with all of its sources, potential sources of contamination. If it's, if it's a negative culture, that's, that's a good thing. Um, uh, it's important to consider the collection method. Obviously, if you have a boy with a history of balanitis and he's uncircumcised, um, this may um, uh, alter the results or, or, or make it difficult to interpret. Uh, pyuria is defined as greater than five white blood cells per high-powered field. In dipsticks, as you know, this leukocyte uh, positive and nitrite positive are very, have a very high positive predictive value for a presumed urinary tract infection. If both are negative, both have a very high negative predictive value. The microscopic analysis is often overlooked but could be helpful. Um, just showing you kind of uh, the the probability of infection based on different techniques or methods of collection, transurethral catheterization, greater than 100,000 units, 95% accurate. So that's, that's fairly good. If you look down for a clean catch, same, same thing, greater than 100,000 is only 80%. Um, obviously, uh, potential sources of contamination there. Um, how to collect the urine? Obviously, it depends on the index of suspicion, how ill the patient is, how... how um, how important it is to get a reliable specimen. Uh, certainly risk factors if the child has had a high fever for greater than 24 to 48 hours, absence of another uh, identifiable source, um, or an uncircumcised boy under one year of age, uh, it should be um, higher on the differential. Uh, this is a great article at a JAMA uh, from about 10 years ago, but I like it because it um, basically breaks down the probability of infection uh, based on, on the patient male versus female. I'll show you the female in the, in the next slide, uncircumcised versus circumcised, and um, with these particular uh, risk factors for infection. And at the bottom, you can see, based on your analysis and, and whether or not there's a probability. So, for example, uncircumcised male uh, with these particular, uh, greater than one of these risk factors, um, with a, a nitrite and leukocyte positive has about a 75 to 80% chance of infection. That just gives you kind of an idea about empirically treating these kids until uh, the culture comes back, et cetera. Again, females um, breakdown versus less than 12 months versus greater than 12 months. Um, so the first infection, uh, it's important to treat it with a full therapeutic dose for 7 to 14 days. Obviously, it's really important. The culture, I can't emphasize the importance of a urine culture in um, obtaining uh, speciation as well as the sensitivities in guiding or antibiotic um, treatment. Um, as you know, it's important not to use nitrofurantoin for systemic infection. It's a very good prophylaxis antibiotic, um, mainly because it gets very highly concentrated in the urinary tract, but and it does not affect the bowel flora as other antibiotics can. Um, but it doesn't really get into the bloodstream very well, so it's not good to treat pyelonephritis with. This is this is a board question in urology. I'm sure it's for for pediatrics as well. Um, and uh, just to get in uh, into why uncircumcised boys are at higher risk, um, well, we know that there's a tenfold decrease in, in circumcised boys in urinary tract infection. Um, circumcision also has the benefit of decreasing sexually transmitted infection, including HIV in some high-risk populations. Um, also, decreased risk of penile cancer. The American Academy of Pediatrics, as you, as you know, has loosely recommended circumcision. Um, um, I do spend a lot of my time talking families out of, out of circumcision, um, I don't think it's, in most cases, medically necessary, um, but obviously there's, um, it's been estimated about 80% of um, American men are, are circumcised. Uh, other parts of the world, obviously, it's, it's much, much less, uh, particularly um, Europe and South America. Um, uh, even in Canada, where I did my fellowship, it's about 80% uncircumcised. Um, so we just have a cultural and um, sort, of, sort of traditional practice here in the States. But I, I think this is changing, uh, particularly in the West Coast, uh, on the West Coast, in places like California. I think they're, they're taking it a little bit extreme and calling it penile mutilation surgery, et cetera. And I, I'm not sure that's quite accurate. I, I think it's, I mean, it's a practice that's been around for thousands of years. Um, I do them in neonates, and it's very well tolerated. Um, but, you know, certainly everybody has their, their opinion about it. 
Um, as I mentioned, it's a common procedure. Um, the risks do outweigh the, uh, the benefits. Sorry, the, the benefits of the procedure do outweigh the risks. Um, specific benefits, benefits, as I mentioned, prevention of UTIs, penile cancer, and transmission of some sexually transmitted infections. Um, I think it's important to point out that if you're if you're more selective about who you're doing circumcision on, you're more likely to benefit the child. So, for example, it does have a reduced incidence of UTI. But if you, the number needed to treat in all comers is about 100. So in other words, you need to treat 100 normal kids, run-of-the-mill boys, with uh, circumcision to prevent one UTI. But if you are more stringent about which kids you're doing circumcision on, the kids with recurrent UTI, reflux, valves, then you only really need to treat 4 to 11. Um, and you are really making a difference with, with this simple operation. Um, anyways, uh, I mentioned this already, STIs and HIV, HPV transmission greatly reduced. Um, but again, any procedure that we do in, in surgery is not without complication. Um, these are complications of circumcision. Um, bleeding is the most common um, complication, usually amenable to uh, either a bandage or a stitch. You know, usually it, 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 uh, those sorts of simple maneuvers can take care of that problem pretty easily. It's very rare to have to take the child to the operating room it's important to rule out bleeding diatheses in, in these kids. Um, obviously, that's a fighting an uphill battle, uh, no matter what you do, if, if they have some uh, bleeding disorder. Um, d death from bleeding is an incredibly rare complication of circumcision, but um, it has happened, and it's important to um, really counsel families on making sure that they get uh, uh, they present early uh, if this issue occurs. Uh, infection is. is is pretty rare. I typically don't do any antibiotics um, in the operating room for circumcisions or um, at the bedside for the neonates, um, just because it's so rare. Um, amputation, incredibly rare, but uh, we have to emergently reattach it in the operating room. Uh, it's important to, I use a Mogan clamp. Um, a lot of people don't like them because, um, I'm sorry I didn't put any pictures of the clamps on here, but uh, the Mogan clamp is uh, a little easier in theory to um, uh, amputate the glands, et cetera, versus uh, the other clamps, the Plastibel or the Gumco clamp or the Plastibel device. Excessive skin loss is rare, penile necrosis. Uh, these are just, we just don't see them. Buried penis, I showed you that picture of that earlier. It's important to do a phalloplasty in the operating room, um, and it's important to recognize these anatomical variants, um, mainly because you can really short the kid quite a bit uh, with the skin that you leave behind. Just a little bit of uh, um, kind of a horror show here. Uh, this is a glands amputation and us taking it back to the operating room to repair it. Um, not a fun complication, but certainly in the realm of possibility. Uh, indications for, for circumcision, certainly it's better in these kids to consider it because it has the most benefit. Uh, it's really important to have well-informed parents and uh, consent make them really aware of the benefits and, and risks of the procedure and the fact that they have the option of not doing it. Um, Contraindications to doing it at the bedside, hypospadias. Um, I like to do those in the operating room, typically six months or older. If they're really mild hypospadias, gla like glandular, um, meaning it's the meatus is still on the and as far back as the corona, uh, I will offer just removing the foreskin, um, and, and I typically won't do a, a formal hypospadias repair in that mild of a hypospadias repair, just so you guys know. Um, a lot of times, kids with very mild hypospadias still have an abnormal foreskin. It's called the dorsal hood deformity. Um, and essentially, that's the next item on the list. It's just a, an incomplete foreskin. It's not all, it, the foreskin doesn't come all the way around ventrally. And mainly, the removal of that, of that foreskin is mostly cosmetic in these kids, just to make, make them look like they have a circumcised penis, rather than sort of this in-between between uncircumcised and, and circumcised. Um, a webbed or buried penis, that's when the scrotal skin, um, if it's webbed, it comes up onto the shaft. Um, so I'll do those in the operating room, mainly to get, allow me to drop down and reestablish the penis scrotal junction. Um, if they have a small penis, obviously it's not a good idea to, to do a circumcision at the bedside. Or if they have a concomitant large hernia or hydrocele, if they, it's really large, I may repair them in the operating room, and I can certainly do the circumcision um, at that time. Just to talk a little bit about reflux, uh, so primary reflux is a deficient submucosal tunnel. Uh, Vesicoureteral reflux, what it is is um, in a normal child, when the bladder fills uh, with urine, the urine should not go back up to the kidneys. There's sort of a flap 
valve mechanism at the level of the ureter orifice where the ureter implants into the bladder, and it compresses that um, that from uh, compresses that opening, closes it up, and prevents reflux. Uh, in children with primary reflux, uh, they have a deficient amount of ureter that's actually in the wall of the bladder tunneling through it. So it's not, it doesn't get compressed as easily when the bladder's full, and th- that allows urine to go up to the kidneys. Um, and why this is a problem is, obviously, if there's any flora uh, bacteria in the bladder, uh, it can uh, ascend up to the kidney and, and increase the child's risk for polynephritis, and not just a cystitis, but actually a febrile urinary tract infection, which has all the morbidity associated with it that I mentioned earlier. Um, Secondary reflux is a bit different. This is really secondary to bladder dynamics. These are kids that are maybe have neurogenic bladders. Their bladders uh, don't function well. They're stiffer, um, particularly in children in the spina bifida population. And what happens is, uh, even at some lower volumes than normal, um, because the bladder is so stiff, that pressure, that increased pressure in the bladder gets transmitted up to the kidneys and overcomes that valve mechanism and causes reflux. These kids also at, are at risk for um, getting infections, but uh, the etiology is a bit different as to why, why they have reflux. Uh, historically, we, we thought, you know, you have reflux, it predisposes to the UTIs, you get scarring, and then you get end-stage renal, end-stage renal disease, hypertension, and preeclampsia. Uh, it's not really as simple as this. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, reflux um, doesn't always lead to UTIs. It can. It's a risk factor. And UTIs don't always cause significant renal scarring to the point where the child needs dialysis, et cetera. This sort of um, algorithm or this transgression is, is pretty rare. Um, but obviously, this is the worst-case scenario, and obviously, this is the reason why we, um, we, we treat this condition. But uh, a lot of the recent research that has been, has been done really has found that most reflux actually resolves on its own. It's not progressive. It's, it's regressive. Um, and that's without clinical consequences. Um, and therefore, most children with reflux don't really need any surgery, um, and really for that reason should have less imaging than we have been doing in the past, and, um, and that's by way of BCUG, et cetera. Um, and that's really the bottom line for reflux um, nowadays in the sort of the current paradigm. Uh, this is just a uh, figure demonstrating the different grades of reflux and years since presentation and the resolution of that, uh, of that reflux. You can see uh, it going down considerably um, as, we're, as we follow these children. Um, certainly the child that has recurrent febrile urinary tract infections, these are breakthrough infections. Um, and and we, we've tried to work with them medically, uh, and they're still getting breakthrough infections. Those children declare themselves as surgical candidates and warrant us to repair them. Um, but the vast majority of kids do a lot better, so it's important to, to keep that in mind. Um, reflux has been known uh, about for centuries. Actually, they were, it was in drawings of Leonardo da Vinci way back when. Um, so it's a condition that... Um, uh, but it, uh, it was only until recently, really the 1950s, where we uh, surgically corrected it. And this is just an interesting classic article um, um, by... Dr. Hutch describing his initial reimplantation surgery, and this was done. Um, this was reimplantation surgery uh, in the in the veteran population in adults uh, who have neurogenic bladder. But but this was sort of even though it's it's not primary reflux in children. This was sort of the initial description of how he reimplanted the ureter into the bladder to elongate that tunnel, as I alluded to before, and prevent reflux. Um, and he actually did VCUGs uh, in his patients and demonstrated that they had reflux, and this is why these veterans were getting recurrent infections. Um, there's a term called reflux nephropathy, the notion that reflux actually can damage the kidney. Uh, and this is just a, a gross specimen showing that scarring um, in the kidney. There's been a lot of research looking into that as to what about, the infe- what about reflux can scar the, the kidney um, and this was done in the 60s and 70s. Um, but it was de- described by Philip Ransley, who's actually a British urologist, um, that it's not reflux by itself, sterile reflux, that actually damages the kidney. But it's reflux in the setting of recurrent pyelonephritis, which makes sense. So it was always con- there was a concern in the, in the beginning about whether or not the process of urine going back up to the kidney was actually detrimental to it. But 
it's, it's actually the inflammation um, from the infection that, that is the cause. Um, and he had a big bang theory, and he thought that if you, once you get your first infection, it can set you up for future infections uh, because the kidney is already weak. I don't necessarily believe in this theory. I, I do believe that the youngest children, the babies, are much more susceptible to kidney damage from infections. And as we get older and, and our kidneys become more resilient and larger, uh, they're less um, damaged by subsequent infections. And typically, it's been estimated at six to seven years of age, usually by this point, uh, the child can handle a pyelonephritis without significant kidney damage. Um, reflux wouldn't be what it is without the VCUG as sort of a diagnostic um, mechanism. As you know, uh, children usually hate the VCUG. I'm, I'm not sure uh, if, if you're ordering a ton of them. I, I, I feel like some, sometimes the, the, the kids come with VCUGs already done, um, and sometimes I'll opt to do them if, if I determine that it's... it's um, it would help me um, with my next step in, in management. Uh, but it's important that, um, that we have careful emotional preparation for the child um, and the parents. Um, an experienced radiology team is very essential um, in, in conducting a good study and, and getting good results. Certainly, inexpert catheterization and a poor quality study are worse than skipping the test. So, um, and that's not news to our radiology department here. Um, but a lot of these VCGs sometimes are done at outside hospitals and are not always the, the greatest studies and are not always as helpful. Um, this is a DMSA scan. Uh, this is another, uh, it's a nuclear medicine scan that helps us to assess renal damage, um, renal scarring. Um, and typically the DMSA substance binds to the kidneys. And then where it's photopenic or, or dark, um, or in this image, bright, um, it means that that area of the kidney is damaged, and that could be from an infection. What's complica a complicating factor about this is some kids with reflux have congenital scarring of the kidney, meaning the kidneys, due to the, the, the reflux condition, particularly in high-grade reflux, um, they have scarring that's already there regardless of infection. So it's, it's not a perfect study, but it's a, just another way of assessing um, scarring post-infection. Uh, reflux is really the cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of pediatric urology and helped to form the the field um, as it is today. Uh, pediatric urology is really a combination of urology, uh, pediatric surgery, and plastic surgery for a lot of the reconstructive surgery that we do. Um, and this global collaboration helped to form um, the international grading system of reflux, which you may be familiar with. Um, uh, basically, low grade is one to three. And this is based on VCUG and the, how it appears on VCUG. Grade 1 is just into the ureter reflux. Grade 2 is into the ureter and uh, the upper collecting system. Grade 3 is all of that with dilatation of the calyces. And you can see that sort of that wine glass sort of cup shape gets flattened a little bit or, or, di or just dilated. And then there's more blunting in, in grade 4 uh, where there's not that cup shape anymore. And grade 5 is all of that with significant ureteral tortuosity. Um, why is that important, low grade versus high grade? Um, well, it, it actually, um, low, it's been found that lower grade uh, refluxers are, are more likely to resolve on their own over time and less likely to get recurrent infection. So it's important to characterize. It's still a fairly rudimentary grading system just based on um, an imaging study like that. There's been a lot of research looking at other, other ways of, of grading reflux and, and assessing uh, um, risk factors for getting urinary tract infections. Um, I thought I'd, I'd put this in here. Gene Smelly is actually a, um, a British uh, pediatrician uh, back in the 70s who actually was responsible for demonstrating that you can watch children while keeping them on antibiotic prophylaxis and actually um, allow the reflux to resolve and, and avoid surgery. Um, and so she was really instrumental in... Um, in promoting this idea uh, that we can do this. All at the same time, surgeons were innovating surgical techniques um, without really fully understanding the implications of, of the long-term sort of natural history of, of reflux. We have an image that shows reflux. We have a kid that has had an infection. Well, let's go in and fix it. But people like Gene Smell are like, well, wait a minute. What if we get to keep the kids on antibiotics, watch them for a little bit, see if they can grow and, you know, bigger and stronger and not get infections anymore? Um, so it was kind of interesting, the dichotomy there. Um, at the same time, um, 
urologists like Victor Politano out of Boston were just describing new techniques for how to reimplant uh, the ureter into the bladder and make that tunnel length longer and prevent reflux. Uh, Cohen is another method of uh, bringing the ureter across the trigone and reimplanting the ureter within the bladder. Um, and you can do both sides that way. And that's uh, by opening the bladder up. There's other ways of doing it by not opening the bladder and doing it from the outside. There's a few different variations of the technique. Um, but an excellent, excellent success rate. Reimplantation surgery is about 95% successful in curing reflux and preventing backflow of urine to the kidneys. Um, but Prem Puri, another uh, British urologist, uh, back in the 80s, described the endoscopic treatment for reflux, which is putting a camera into the bladder and re um, actually injecting. This is the side view of the bladder where the ureter comes in, and actually doing a subureteric injection of, of a material. It was originally Teflon um, back in the 80s, but there was a lot of uh, pushback from the community regarding uh, migration of this substance in the body, and it's actually questions regarding its safety. Um, We've since replaced uh, Teflon with uh, deflux, which is dextronomer hyaluronic acid. I actually did two of those cases yesterday for little girls with recurrent infections, um, breakthrough infections while on antibiotic prophylaxis from reflux. Um, it's outpatient surgery. There's no incisions. It's all endoscopic. It takes me less than an hour to do it, um, and it has about 85% success rate. So I, I think this is a nice... Um, initial way of managing reflux, um, and obviously if this fails and the child still uh, gets recurrent infections afterwards, then you can opt to do a, a larger surgical procedure. The reimplantation surgery uh, is about a two to three day hospital stay. Um, usually it's a fan and steel incision uh, in the lower abdomen. Um, certain groups have, have done the laparoscopic or robotic technique for it, but there has been some speculation about whether or not that's as good as the open. Um, Anyways, uh, I put this image up to, to emphasize the fact that if you were to take all these kids and do VCUGs on all of them, and these are kids, most of which never had a febrile urinary tract infection, how many kids do you think would have radiologic, a radiologic diagnosis of reflux? Anybody? Just two. Just two? Really? I beg to dip. No, I beg to differ. The reason why I put it up, I, I think um, upwards of 25% of these kids at any point in their life would have a radiologic diagnosis of reflux. So why is it that only a small portion of these kids are presenting to us with febrile urinary tract infections? And I think it has to do with the fact that I think reflux is a risk factor, just like there are other risk factors for febrile urinary tract infections. And if we, help, if we treat the whole patient um, and not just a radiologic diagnosis, not just a radiologic finding, um, we can help understand why these kids are getting infections and help actually prevent infections going forward, even if they have reflux. Um, so if you look uh, here, this is, just an, this is an old slide from way back when, but um, inadequate fluid intake leads to low urine volume, infrequent in voiding, um, and then as a result, you're not flushing the bladder out and you have potential for increased bacterial colonization within the bladder. Uh, constipation as well is another significant risk factor for infections, um, and mainly because you're increasing the amount of perineal colonization of bacteria. And obviously in little girls, the urethra is short, and bacteria can get in a lot easier than in the, in the male, and that's, but that's sort of the thought process as to why uh, females do have a higher uh, incidence of urinary tract infections as they, as they get older, um, and why that doesn't go away. Um, Dysfunctional voiding or not holding the bladder, uh, uh, or, not, or not emptying the bladder frequently enough. Poor hygiene. Uh, some girls do uh, vaginal void where they don't spread their legs enough, and the urine can actually go into the vagina and, and act uh, as a nidus for infection because they're not. Um, uh, you, they get some urine pooling there, and, and that can certainly increase the the amount of bacteria uh, colonization. So, really, uh, what I'm the reason why I put this up. It's really important to to treat this, and, and, that, and that starts with you, with you guys, before they even see the urologist, uh, recommending frequent volitional voiding, so time voiding, uh, increasing the water intake, aggressively treating constipation, um, and also um, maintaining adequate perineal hygiene. This is a study just showing uh, the incidence of UTI in kids with bladder and bowel dysfunction, or the dysfunctional elimination syndrome, versus no, no bladder and bowel dysfunction. As you can see, it's, it's significantly higher 
40% you know, versus less than 20% in, in the kids without bladder. So I, I think bladder and bowel dysfunction is a huge um, part of the, of, the, of the pie as to why certain children are getting recurrent infections, um, um, regardless if they have reflux or not, but certainly reflux makes it worse. So um, I like to think of myself as a plumber um, in urology, um, and mainly because we have to ensure that there's reliable intake as well as reliable outflow. <laughs> um, and so in other words, if it, it, it's a plumbing system. If, if you're flushing it out well enough and it's emptying well, okay, um, then really there's no reason why it shouldn't function properly. Um, and if we're not addressing those two very simple um, ideas, then we're not adequately treating our patients. Um, Dr. Penna, I'm gonna, yeah. I, I see people starting to move. Okay, so yeah, sorry. It's 9 o'clock, um, and I think that was a good note. Uh, what comes in must come out. That's mm-hmm. an entire question. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably have time for one or two questions, and then people have to get off the clinic. But mm-hmm. I really want to thank Dr. Penna for his time. Mm-hmm. If you didn't get the code this morning, it's VDU6. Again, it's VDU6. And I look forward to hearing his future research because it sounds like he's doing some pretty incredible things right now. Thank you. Um,